Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, Matthew 8, and we're going to be looking at 17 verses in Matthew 8, so we want everybody to have a copy of God's Word as we do. These brothers are going to make their way to the back. They have some Bibles, so get their attention if you need one, and they'll get one of those to you as we look at Matthew 8 together. Robert E. Lee is a name known to military strategists and Civil War historians. He's known mostly for the brilliance that he demonstrated in leading the Confederate Army during the Civil War. Before Lee became the leader of the Army of Northern Virginia in 1860, he had already made a name for himself in military circles, having graduated second in his class at West Point and leading a number of battle victories in the Mexican War. When the Civil War began, his services were sought by both the North and the South, And though he was not in favor of some southern states' decision to secede from the Union, he resigned his post in the U.S. Army and became a general for the South, reasoning that he could not fight against his native Virginia. Before long, he was the commander of all Confederate forces, and again he demonstrated his military prowess. The Battle of Chancellorsville in May of 1863 is considered to be his greatest triumph of the war because he repelled the advance of the Union Army even though it had several times the number of troops that Lee had. Just two months later, he had his forces on the march reaching to Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. But even the greatest and most brilliant of generals gets it wrong sometimes. Lee's forces met a fatal defeat when he ordered his commander, George Pickett, to ascend a ridge at Gettysburg and Pickett's men were slaughtered by the Union Army. Pickett's charge, as it's called, spelled the end of the Battle of Gettysburg, and it was the last incursion that the Confederate Army was able to make into Northern Territory, and it really marked the beginning of the end of the Civil War itself. Now, the Confederate soldiers under Lee's command would do anything that the brilliant commander ordered. They would do it because of his position as their superior, but also because they had, for good reason, come to believe in his extraordinary ability. But after all his accomplishments that earned him the well-earned reputation as a military genius, Robert E. Lee was, after all, only human. In the Gospel of Matthew, he's showing us who Jesus is that he's the promised Messiah of Israel, and he's doing that by highlighting the various ways in which Jesus displayed his extraordinary authority. Last Sunday, we finished our series of many months through the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And we finished that with the final words of chapter 7, which speak of the amazed crowds and their reaction to what they heard from Jesus Verse 29 of chapter 7, he spoke as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. But Matthew is not content to show Jesus' unique authority only in how and what Jesus taught. He wants to show that authority also in what Jesus did. And that's why I wanted to have one last message in really as really a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. Because... Beginning in Matthew chapter 8, 
Matthew gives us a look at how Jesus' authority is shown in what he did after delivering the sermon. And so the title of this message is The Sermon on the Move. And in it, we're going to see three healings that Jesus performed that further demonstrate his absolute authority and how we should respond to him and to that authority. Unlike Robert E. Lee, Jesus is not only human, but he's human and divine. And unlike mere man, the God-man always utilizes his authority perfectly in his world at large and also in our individual lives. We want to see that together today, so let's ask the Lord to help us as we do. Father, we come to you again, as always, completely needy, needful to hear from you, from your word, and then to make application of what you tell us to our lives. Lord, we need your help to keep blinders, the blinders of sin from keeping us to see you and seeing ourselves as you and we truly are. Help us then, Lord, not to be hearers only, but to be doers of your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Matthew 8 and verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, he was cleansed of his leprosy. Now, what are you, what am I supposed to get out of, out of that? Well, one way you could look at it is, if I ever find myself suffering from leprosy, I'll try to find Jesus. Maybe he'll reach out and heal me. Good luck with that. Instead, how about this? Let's see what these healings, we're going to see two more. Let's see what these healings tell us about Jesus and about ourselves and about our relationship to him. And I have, as each week, an outline for you that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out already, please take a look at that. And in this first healing, we see that we are to humbly accept what Jesus gives. We're to humbly accept what Jesus gives. The earthly ministry of Jesus saw an explosion of miraculous activity. In fact, if you look down at verse 16 of Matthew 8, it says, Many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. So at the time of Jesus, 2,000 years ago, walking the earth, there was this explosion of healing and miraculous activity. But this was far from the norm. One commentator has said, most biblical miracles happened in three relatively brief periods of Bible history. The days of Moses and Joshua, during the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, and thirdly, in the time of Christ and the apostles. None of those periods lasted much more than 100 years. Each of the three experienced a proliferation of miracles unheard of at other times in God's redemptive history. Aside from those three intervals, the only other miracles recorded in Scripture are very, very isolated events. Oral Roberts, a supposed faith healer, used to say, expect a miracle. You know, the cool thing about miracles is that they don't happen all that often. They're outside the norm. So why were there so many of them at the time that Jesus walked the earth? Well, God performed these miracles, the Bible tells us, as signs. 
Because they point to, as a sign does, they point to, they signify, signify something else. And in the case of Jesus 2,000 years ago, his miracles were signs that the Messianic age had come. These are sometimes called signs of the kingdom. And they're signs of the kingdom because in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, the prophets made predictions about the coming of the anointed one, the Messiah, and the kinds of things that would happen when he came on the scene. And so Isaiah chapter 35 says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And famously in Isaiah chapter 61, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and to comfort all who mourn. Now this is all true then, all predictions of what's going to happen when Jesus comes and what will happen when he ultimately does establish his, his kingdom. These kinds of healings will take place and all will be made right that has gone wrong in the world because of the entrance of sin. And so the Messiah has come and he's signifying that by these, by these healings. Now John the Baptist was one of those who, as we read earlier, was preparing the way of the Lord, looking for the one who was promised to come. And he was convinced that Jesus was that one. But then John found himself languishing in prison for preaching about Jesus. And on one occasion, John had a momentary doubt about whether or not Jesus was, in fact, the anointed one. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 to tell John the Baptist in response to his questions about Jesus' Messiahship. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. You see what Jesus has said here. He's saying, John, I remind you that I in, indeed am fulfilling all of the things that the Old Testament prophets said would happen when the Messiah comes. And he alludes to Isaiah chapter 61 and other passages in the Old Testament. This healing then of the leprous man is a sign that Jesus is the Messiah. And in it, in this episode of healing, it teaches us that, as I say in your outline, that he, Jesus, can do anything. He can do anything. The man says to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, Lord, if you are willing, you can heal me of this disease, the skin disease of leprosy. Leprosy is a skin disease that was thought to be highly contagious, and so extraordinary measures were taken for the leper to avoid any contact with anyone, anyone else. In fact, in Leviticus, in your Old Testament, the Bible says this, anyone with such a defiling disease must do this, must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. So here is this man who has this disease, 
who has all of these requirements placed upon him. He's not to come in contact with others. When verse 1 says that when Jesus came down from the mountain after delivering the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew does not give us a precise time frame in which this man approached Jesus. It may be that the man was listening in to the Sermon on the Mount. And he determined that this is a man who said, I'm preaching good news to the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So maybe I, even a leper, can, can come to him. But whatever his reasoning, believing that Jesus would listen to him and allow him to approach when others would not, this man came to Jesus. According to one article, among the 61 defilements of ancient Jewish laws, leprosy was second only to a dead body in seriousness. A leper wasn't allowed to come within six feet of any other human, including his own family. The disease was considered so revolting that the leper wasn't permitted to come within 150 feet of anyone when the wind was blowing. Lepers lived in a community with other lepers until they either got better or died. This was the only way the people knew to contain the spread of the contagious forms of leprosy. And lepers then were hopeless. And leprosy was considered to be a curse of God. Numbers chapter 12 says this, One woman had skin, had skin that was leprous, and that leprous skin was called a defiling skin disease, a defilement. In 2 Kings chapter 5, someone who had sinned is judged, and it says leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. So here's a man with this horrible disease, an outcast from society, seen to have the judgment of, of God upon him. And somehow he makes his way through the crowd, probably crying out, unclean, unclean, and people are moving out of the way as this guy comes. And he approaches the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, if you are willing, I can be made clean. And Jesus says to him, I'm willing. And the Bible says that the God-man reached out his hand and touched this leper. Now you think about standing there and watching that. A sea of people has divided as this man comes to Jesus, and he and Jesus stand alone in this encounter. And people wonder how this man could have the audacity to approach the one who has spoke as Jesus has. And Jesus, far from moving away from him, touches this man. And Jesus does not then become defiled, as the Old Testament says. Instead, the man who was defiled becomes clean. Matthew understood the healing of leprosy to be a sign of the dawning of the Messianic age. And that's probably why this particular healing is first in a list of several that he's going to give, because it provides a powerful instance of Jesus' authority at work. And so this encounter with the leper shows that Jesus can do anything. The man says, if you are willing, and Jesus says, I am willing, and he says the word, be clean, and the man is clean. He can do anything, but I say in your outline as well, he's not obligated to do anything. He can, but he is not obligated. Do you know that Jesus did not perform miracles for everybody who sought them? The Bible tells us of a number of such occasions. One is when some religious leaders came to Jesus and said, show us a sign. 
Matthew 12, some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 1, when again he was asked for a sign by the religious leaders. And Jesus not only refused to perform for the hypocritical religious leaders on demand, the healing ministry of his first followers, the apostles, was not consistent throughout their ministries either. There were times where they would heal, and then there were times where they they did not heal. Acts chapter 19 records that the apostle Paul had the ability to heal. It says this, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. So here Paul has the gift of healing. He is able to heal. He performed such healing. But then the Bible tells us later in Paul's ministry, at the end of his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, he says this, Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth. And I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Huh. I mean, what... What did Trophimus do wrong? I thought we were friends. You have the gift of healing. Why not, why not heal me? Not only did Paul not heal all the time when someone was sick, we've already seen that Jesus did not perform on demand either. And in fact, Paul himself apparently had a physical malady. He pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord did not heal Paul. 2 Corinthians 12, three times, Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord to take a thorn in my flesh away from me, but he, the Lord, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So contrary to the so-called faith movement, Jesus is not always willing to heal. Jesus heals when it fits his purpose, and and he withholds healing when it fits his purpose. The implication of this for us, friends, is we do not order Jesus to do anything. We can desire, but we do not demand. We can desire, but we do not demand. And I find the difference between desire and demand to be one of the things that plagues God's people in our sin regularly. We develop our desires, and then we make an implicit demand. We would never verbalize it. But in the way we behave, when God doesn't fulfill our demand, our our desire, shows that it has morphed into a demand. Now, you see this in relationships. A desire morphs, changes into a demand. A wife desires that her husband be other than he is, that he be a spiritual leader in the home. That's a good desire. But it's not just a good desire. It can easily morph and change into a demand. If God doesn't do this, then I, the woman now, am going to violate the commands that God gives me. God says, don't be a nag. That's my paraphrase. Of First Peter chapter 3. Where Peter says, perhaps your husband will be won over without words. Don't be a nag. But the wife takes upon herself 
the necessity of making the man and changing the man into what she wants him to be. And even though that desire is good, she nor any of us has a right to make a demand on God. We men may have difficulty with our employment and our employer. And rather than taking the approach that the Bible tells us, that God is in control of all things and we have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, Philippians chapter 4, our desire for something better and suffering different implicitly becomes a demand on God to change it or I will not express the joy in my life that you command. Friends, Jesus can do anything. But what Jesus chooses to do is always for his purpose, not ours. And we are always to subordinate our purposes to his. We must believe that he can, but that not, does not mean that he will. And so that raises a question, at least for me, why does God require that we believe if he's not going to do so? Why does God require that I regularly remind myself to have faith that God can if, in fact, he's not going to do it in, on some occasions? Here's why. Because that knowledge that he can, if he will, makes us always and regularly, consciously dependent on him. And that is precisely where God wants us to be and where we must be. Jesus can do anything, but he's not obligated to do anything. And we are required to accept what Jesus gives. Verse 4, Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, Jesus had done this on other occasions, or he would do this on other occasions. In fact, in the very next chapter in Matthew, he's going to tell someone that he's given sight, a blind man to whom he's given sight, to not go and tell anyone. This is what it says in verse 28 of chapter 9. Blind men came to him. He touched their eyes and their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. Now why? Why is Jesus saying don't go tell anybody? And he did this numerous times. Here's why. It was to keep the crowds at bay. The more you go and spread this, the more difficult it is for me to carry out my purposes. It was to keep the crowds who were more interested in healings and in bread and in the Messiah trouncing the Romans, it was to keep them from seeing him as an on-demand Messiah. And so Jesus says many times, don't go tell anyone. But he tells this formerly leprous man, go and offer the gift that Moses required. Now, what is the gift that Moses required? Leviticus tells us. The priest is to sacrifice the sin offering and make atonement for the one to be cleansed from their uncleanness. Now, that's to make atonement in the law of Moses. But in this case, it's the gift that Moses required, not for atonement, but Jesus says as a testimony to them. And that testimony, that witness, is to show that the Messiah is here. Go to the priests. Go perform the ceremonial cleansing that Leviticus 14 requires. But do this as a testimony to those priests. The Messiah is here. He is the one who has cleansed me, and these signs of the kingdom are now present. Now, please look at beginning verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, 
My servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, Shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. Now I say in your outline that we are to humbly accept what Jesus gives. That he can do anything that he wants but he's not obligated. And now secondly in your outline, we're to humbly submit to what Jesus says. We are to humbly submit to what Jesus says. Now, Jesus is in Capernaum, and this centurion comes to him. Now, why was Jesus in Capernaum? Because the Bible tells us that Jesus actually set up his headquarters in that city for his his earthly ministry. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, it says Jesus went and lived in Capernaum. And here is this centurion. I'm going to explain what a centurion is in just a moment. But in Jesus' day, Capernaum was an important military garrison town. And a centurion was so named because he had charge over a hundred soldiers, and thus the name. And so a cent, a penny, a cent, is one one one-hundredth of a dollar. A century is a hundred years. A centurion is one who had command over a hundred Roman soldiers. And one reference work says this, the backbone of the Roman army were the centurions. The centurions were legionaries, and they were clearly noted noticed because they wore a special helmet. They carried a short vinewood staff as a symbol of rank. They worked their way up the ranks as soldiers and were promoted for their dedication and courage. They were the veteran soldiers who commanded a hundred men each within a legion of 6,000. And so there were 60 centuries in a legion, each under the command of a centurion. And during the time of Caesar Augustus, during New Testament times, There were 28 such legions of 6,000 each, and then 60 centurions over each 100 of those. There were no Roman legions posted in Palestine, but there were what are called auxiliaries, that is, non-Roman citizen troops who were there, non-Jews who were probably recruited from outside of Galilee, perhaps in Lebanon or Syria. And so here you have a man who's a Gentile, a non-Jew, he's stationed in Capernaum where Jesus has set up his headquarters and he's overseeing a hundred non-Roman citizens who came from out of town. And so there is special racial tension here. You've got a Gentile Roman in Jewish territory and he's the one who comes to Jesus asking a Jew to heal his servant. And that's what's behind Jesus' question to him in verse 7. In verse 7, Jesus says, Shall I come and heal him? And the I there is emphatic. It's at the, the front in Greek, the language your New Testament was written in. And the emphasis then is on the I. Jesus is saying, Shall I, a Jew, heal him? And this man does not care about racial issues at this point. He's only interested in results, and he knows that Jesus can get those results if Jesus so wills, because the centurion understands how authority works. 
D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, says of this centurion and his understanding of authority, the centurion sees himself as simultaneously under authority and as one exercising authority. I myself, he says, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. In the Roman military system, all ultimate authority was vested in the emperor and was delegated, delegated down the military hierarchy. Therefore, because he was part of this structure, when the centurion commanded a foot soldier to come or go or do something, he was not speaking as one man to another, but as a representative of Rome. The centurion was under the authority of his commanding tribune, and so on, and so on all the way back to the emperor, but the foot soldier was under him. Therefore, when the centurion spoke, so far as those under him were concerned, it was Rome that was speaking. And disobedience to the centurion was not mere defiance of a fellow human being, but rebellion against Rome, treason before the emperor, an insult to the empire. The centurion applies to Jesus this grasp of his own position and authority. Because Jesus is under God's authority, always perfectly conforming to the authority that's exercised over him, the centurion is certain that when Jesus exercises authority, it's none less than God's authority. When the centurion speaks, Rome speaks. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. To defy Jesus is to defy God. Jesus' word is invested with God's authority. So he is well able to heal sickness with simply a word. When the centurion gives commands to those under him, things happen. He does not have to be there to oversee every step of the operation because he's conscious of the authority vested in him. His word is sufficient to guarantee the operation is carried out. He expects no less from Jesus. If when Jesus speaks, he exercises the authority of God himself, there is no real need for Jesus to be present or to check upon the result. The word itself is authoritative and cannot be ineffective. If Jesus but commands the sickness to cease, it will cease. Now what that tells us, friends is that we are to submit to what Jesus says. Jesus is under the authority of God the Father and has been authorized, given authority by God the Father to carry out the mission that has been assigned to him by God the Father. And as God himself, Jesus has all authority. And so when you come then to the end of the book of Matthew, 28 chapters worth, as Matthew has outlined the authority of Jesus in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and then in his healings and in his casting out of demons and commanding of the waves and the winds, you come to the 28th chapter, to the last two verses of this gospel. And it says, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, dear friend, Jesus says, you go, you go, we go. And I've given you a mission to carry out. And I've given you that mission to carry out on the basis of the authority that I have implicitly within who I am and that has been given to me by God the Father. All of this authority has been mine and therefore you are to do as I say. The implications and applications of that are too numerous for us to go through. But it at minimum means this, that Jesus is commanding us by his word of authority to align our lives around the mission that he has given to us. All authority of his mind. 
Therefore, go and make disciples. That's why he's given the church. That's why in the book of Acts, the fifth book in your New Testament, then you have the beginning of the church, then carrying out that mission that Jesus left as his final instructions to his first followers. And he says, surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We have been given those marching orders by our commanding officer. And every last one of us, according to the authoritative word of Jesus, is to be actively involved in that mission. We are to humbly accept what Jesus gives. We're to place ourselves under the authority of Jesus, submit to what Jesus says. And then thirdly in your outline, we are to humbly believe what Jesus claims. Humbly believe what Jesus claims. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Now again here we see a reference to this racial tension. This Gentile has demonstrated faith. Jesus says that I have not found in my own people, the Jews in Israel. I've not found anyone, verse 10, in Israel with such great faith. This Gentile accepts that he, Jesus, is sent from God. And that kind of faith, Jesus says, will gain one entrance into the company of God's people, no matter Jew or Gentile, no matter one's race. And Gentiles who believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, the Messiah, with all authority, those who believe that have more in store for them than a temporary healing. Jesus heals the servant, but I say it's temporary because the servant, like all people, will later die. There are resurrections in the, in the New Testament. Those people who are resurrected, other than Jesus, they later die awaiting the resurrection at the last day. So Gentiles who believe have more in store than a temporary healing. Verse 11 says, Many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, we're talking about Gentiles here. And these Gentiles, Jesus says, are going to take their place at the feast of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these Jewish forefathers. Jesus is saying, The key is not your lineage. The key is what you believe about me. And what is this feast that Jesus speaks of? Well, it was predicted in the first part of your Bible, Isaiah 25. The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. I find it interesting that this man, this Roman centurion, comes to Jesus in this episode in Matthew chapter 8. And then in Acts chapter 10, as the gospel is advancing through the Roman Empire, through the apostles, and it first goes to the Jews through the synagogue system, and all of the apostles are Jewish themselves, but then it begins to go to the Gentile world. And the first place that it goes into the Gentile world is found in Acts chapter 10 to none other than a centurion. Here's what the Bible says. 
there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion. And Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So the issue is not one's race, Jesus is teaching us. It is what one believes about Jesus. In verse 13, when Jesus speaks the word and guarantees to this man that your servant has been healed, in verse 13 he says, your servant has been healed, quote, just as you believed it would. And sometimes that's translated according to your faith or according to your belief. So sometimes people see that and they think that this person was healed because of the centurion's great faith, that that's what caused it. But when Jesus says, just as you believed it would, it's not saying in proportion to your faith or that it was caused by your faith, but that what I did was the expected and desired result of your faith. Just as you expected and asked, I have done, Jesus says. We're to humbly accept what Jesus gives. We are to humbly submit to what Jesus says. We are to humbly believe what Jesus claims about himself. And then lastly, we are to humbly connect what Jesus provides. Humbly connect what Jesus provides. Verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities, and he bore our diseases. Now, Jesus is still in Capernaum, and he goes to where he, Jesus, probably lives, in Peter's house. The discovery of Peter's home in Capernaum was reported in the Biblical Archaeology Review about 30 years ago. What a marvelous thing to see this house referred to and the very place that Jesus had set up his headquarters for his earthly ministry. In effect, Jesus goes home and he finds Peter's mother-in-law who's apparently living with, with him and she has this fever. Fever was considered a malady, not just a symptom. The Bible tells us Jesus touched her, although Jewish tradition forbade touching persons with fevers. And this is because, just as we saw with that leprous servant, when Jesus touches the defiled, it's not he who becomes unclean, but the defiled person becomes clean. Now here's what I want you to see as we conclude today's message. I want you to see in verse 17 the quotation from Isaiah 53, where it says, This is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. The context from which that quote comes is Isaiah chapter 53 in your Old Testament. And the context of Isaiah 53 suggests that he took up infirmities on the cross. But notice here, Matthew is saying, This healing fulfills that promise. So which is it? Well, Isaiah 53 suggests it's on the cross. Famously, many of you know this passage, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds on the cross we are healed. And this prophecy is linked to the cross in your New Testament as well. 
1 Peter 2, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. So in Isaiah 53 and even in the New Testament, this healing is, has reference to the cross. In Matthew 8, Matthew says it has reference to this particular healing is a fulfillment of this prophecy. Why so? Well, what we need to understand and do is what I say in the outline. We need to connect. We need to connect all that Jesus does and provides with our sin. Connect it to our sin. You see, the reason Jesus came, Matthew chapter 1, was to save his people from their what? From their sins. And all of the maladies, all of the bad things that happen to us and are done by us in a fallen world all happen because of sin. Every time a natural disaster occurs, every time an an atrocity is committed, every time a bad thing happens, the Bible teaches it is always because of sin. It is always because we live in a fallen world. So we have to always think that way. Everything that Jesus provides for us, we need to see in the context of Him providing it to us, in the context of us living in a fallen world, being sinned against and sinning ourselves. We connect it to our sin, and then I say in your outline, we connect it to His cross. We connect it to His cross. Now how? This healing that Jesus does of this man, that Matthew says is fulfilling Isaiah 53, is all only possible, Matthew is teaching us, because in just a short time, Jesus is going to go to the cross. The only reason that healings happen at all is because God has made provision for us in the cross. And in this case, Jesus is doing a healing before the cross any healing he does after the cross, in the kingdom when he comes in the future, when there will be no more sickness, no pain, no crying, all of that is centered upon the cross. And so that's how Matthew can say in this healing it's fulfilling because it is all ultimately tied to the cross of Jesus. When I was growing up, many of you know I grew up in a Pentecostal church. And in our Pentecostal church we had healing services. The healing services we had were nothing like what you read in the New Testament. There were no obvious and verifiable miracles that occurred in all the years that we we did that. If you had a cold and you came to be healed, we would pray over you, and in a week to ten days you would be fine. And we had a phrase in our Pentecostal church, in fact, in our doctrinal statement, and this is in the doctrinal statement, doctrinal statement of many Pentecostal denominations, quote, there is healing in the atonement. And what they mean by that is, in the atonement of Jesus, His work on the cross, atoning for sins, He has also made healing available, and not only available, but healing for all on, in many denominations on demand. But hear this. It's just as true to say there is the resurrection body in the atonement, as there is to say there's healing in the atonement. I mean, the truth is, because of the atonement of Jesus, there is the resurrection, and there will be a future resurrection. But that doesn't mean everybody should go around saying, I've got a resurrection body. This will happen in the future. It happened at times as God willed 2,000 years ago, and the same thing is true of healing. Now, I want you to notice... And we'll be done. 
that throughout this message and the outline that I've given you, Jesus is literally the center of this message. I have his name at the center of each line of our major points. And here's why. Because Jesus is the center of the Sermon on the Mount. And he is the center now of Matthew's gospel as he moves forward. And he is to be the center of our lives in whatever he gives, in whatever he says, in whatever he claims, in whatever he provides. In all of it, dear friends, it is all that we need. And I say in your outline throughout that we are to humbly accept and we're to humbly believe and we're to humbly submit. I say all of that humbly because it goes back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is the only way that you come to Jesus. It is the only way that you live life with Jesus is humbly. And so I say in your take-home truth, Christians see the person and work of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus as central to their lives. Now, we're going to bow and pray in just a moment. We're at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We have seen Jesus' authority in His teaching. Today we have seen briefly Jesus' authority in His deeds, in His healing. And Jesus is the central person, and Jesus' work is the central issue. His work, particularly on the cross, is the central issue for every person. And so we're going to bow and pray in just a moment, and you're invited to trust this one Jesus who has given ample evidence of who He claims to be, the Messiah, the Anointed One, God having come in the flesh. And He commands you, He commands you now, to receive Him as your Savior and bow before Him as your Lord. And dear friend, do not be so arrogant as to say, let me think about it. He commands you to bow before Him. And for those of us who claim Jesus is our Lord, but we have some desire that has morphed into a demand, and we are saying to Jesus, you change this or else I will do what you have forbidden. Or you change this or else I will not do what you have commanded then now is the time for us to confess that sin before the Lord Jesus Christ. He graciously gives us that opportunity. Let's bow together as we do. Father, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And it is out of the cross in his atonement that all of the blessings that accrue to us as sinners are received. Whatever healings occur, whatever gifts are given to us, none of them are deserved by us, but only given to us because the hostilities that existed between sinful men and a holy God has been appeased through the blood of Jesus on the cross. And so, Lord, we thank you for all that you have given us, and it has all come to us through the cross of Jesus. And those of us who have bowed at a point in time at the cross of Jesus and given our lives to you and seeking to please you with what we do, Lord, we ask you to forgive us. Forgive us in those ways, sometimes very subtle, that we have demanded of you. Oh, how arrogant our God demanded of the Lord that you do things in a particular way in our time frame. Oh, Lord, forgive. I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters who are here and they are living day in and day out with these demands in their hearts to our God and refusing to be and to do what you have told us to be and do unless you carry things out the way we require. 
And Lord, I pray for any who entered this room not knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, the healer of the body, but more important, the healer of our sin-sick souls. And I pray that in this sacred moment, your spirit is moving on their hearts and drawing them to yourself so they're bowing before the cross of Jesus for the first time. We ask you, Lord, to do in them what you are doing in us. Give your Holy Spirit and begin changing them from the inside out into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.